Chapter Thirty Nine of Crips the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Nine A Tombstone. Are there any who do not quicken to the impulse of young life, lifted free of long repression and the dread of dull relapse? Can we find a man or woman, holding almost any age, able to come out and meet the challenge of the sun, conveyed in cartel of white clouds of May, and yet to stick to private sense of sulky wrongs and brooding hate? If we could find such a man or woman, by great waste of labor in a search ungracious, and if it should seem worth while to attempt to cure the case, scarcely anything could be thought of, leading more directly towards the end in view, than to fetch that person, and plant him or her without a word of explanation, among the flower-beds on the little lawn of Beckley Barton. The flowers themselves, and their open eyes, and the sparkling smile of the grass, and the untold commerce of the freighted bees, and rich voluntaries of thrush and blackbird, ruffled to the throat with song, and over the whole the soft flow of sunshine, like a vast pervasive river of gold, with silver wave of clouds, who could dwell on petty aches and pains among such grandeur? The old squire sat in his bower chair with a warm cloak over his shoulders. His age was threescore and ten this day, and he looked back through the length of years and marveled at their fleeting, the stirring times of his youth, and the daily perils of his prime of life, the long, hard battle and the slow promotion because he had given offence by some projection of honest opinion, the heavy disappointment, and the forced retirement from the army when the wars were over, with only the rank of major which he preferred to sink in squire, because he ought to have been, according to his own view of the matter, a good lieutenant-general, and then a very short golden age of five years and a quarter from his wedding day to the death of his wife, a single and sweet-hearted wife, and after that, as sorrow sank into the soothing breast of time, the soft and gentle and undreamed-of step of comfort, coming almost faster than was welcome, while his little daughter grew. After that the old man tried to think no more, but be content to let the little scenes of dancing and of asking and of listening and of looking puzzled and of waiting to know truly whether all was earnest, because already childhood had suspicion that there might be things intended to delude it, and of raising from the level of papa's well-buttoned pocket clear bright eyes that did not know a guinea from a halfpenny. And then, with the very extraordinary spring from the elasticity of red calves, which happily departs right early, and jumping into opened arms and the laying on of little lips, and the murmurs of delighted love, to let his recollections of all these die out, and to do without them, was this old man's business now. For he had been convinced at last, strange as it may seem, until we call to mind how the strongest convictions are produced by the weakest logic, at last he could no longer hope to see his grace again, because he had beheld her tombstone, having made up his mind to go to church that very Sunday morning in spite of all Widow Hookham could do to stop him, he had spied a new stone in the graveyard corner, sacred to the family of Oglander, 
The old man went up to see what it was, and nobody liked to follow him, and nobody was surprised that he did not show his white head at the chancel door, though the person waited five minutes for him. Being exceeding loath to waste ten lines which he had interlarded into a sermon of thirty years back for the present sad occasion. For the old squire sat on his grandfather's tombstone, a tabular piece of memorial, suited to an hospitable man, where all his descendants might sit around and have their dinners served to them, and he leaned his shaven chin on the head of his stout oak staff, and he took off his hat and let his white hair fall about. He fixed his still bright eyes on the tombstone of his daughter, and tried to fasten his mind there also, and to make out how old she was. He was angry with himself for not being able to tell to a day without thinking. But days and years and thoughts and doings of quiet love quite slipping by, and spreading without ruffle, had left him little to lay hold of as a knotted record. Therefore he sat with his chin on his stick, and had no sense of church time until the choir, which comprised seven cripses, bellowed out an anthem which must have shaken their grandfathers in their graves, unless in their time they had done the same. In this great uproar and applause, which always travelled for half a mile, the squire had made his escape from the graveyard, and then he had gone home without a word and eaten his dinner, because he must when the due time came for it, and now, being filled with substantial faith that his household was nicely enjoying itself, he was come to his bower to think and wonder, and perhaps by and by to fall fast asleep, but never awake to bright hope again. To this relief and mild incline of gentle age, his head was bowing and his white hair settling down, according as the sun or wind or clouds or time of day desired, when some one darkened half his light, and there stood Mary Hookham. Mary had the newest of all new spring fashions on her head and breast and waist and everywhere. A truly spirited girl was she, as well as a very handy one, and she never thought twice of a sixpence or shilling, if a soiled paper pattern could be had for it, and now she was busy with half a guinea, kindly beginning to form its impress on her moist, hard-working palm. "'He have had a time of it,' she exclaimed as her master began to gaze around. "'Oh, my, what a time of it he have had! Mary, I suppose you're talking of me. Yes, I have had a bad time on the whole.' but many people have had far worse. Yes, sir, and will you see one who hath, as fine a young gentleman as ever lived, so ready to speak up for everybody, and walking like a statute, it give me such a turn, I do believe you never would know him, sir, without his name come in with him. Squire Overshoot, sir, if you please, requesteth the honour of seeing of you. "'Mary, I am hardly fit for it. I was doing my best to sit quite quiet and try to think of things. I am not as I was yesterday, or even as I was this morning. But if I ought to see him, why, I will. And perhaps I ought, no doubt, when I come to think of things. The poor young man has been very ill. 
to be sure I remember all about it. Show him where I am at once. What a sad thing for his mother. His mother is a wonderful clever woman of the soundest views in politics. His mother be dead, sir. I had better tell you for fear of begetting any trifles with him, although he was told to keep such things from you. Howsomever, I do think that he be coming to himself, or he would not have fallen out of patience as I hath done. And now here he be, sir. Russell Overshoot narrowed and flattened into half of his proper size, and heightened thereby to unnatural stature, for stoop he would not, although so weak. Here he was walking along the damp walk, when a bed or sofa or a drawn-out chair at Shotover Grange was his proper place. He walked with the help of a crutch-handled stick, and his deep morning dress made him look almost ghastly. His eyes, however, were bright and steady, and he made an attempt at a cheerful smile, as he congratulated the squire on the great improvement of his health. "'For that I have to thank you, my dear friend,' answered Mr. Oglander. "'For weeks I had been helpless till I helped myself. "'I mean, of course, by the great blessing of the Lord. "'But of your sad troubles, whatever shall I say?' "'My dear sir, say nothing, if you please. "'I cannot bear it as yet to speak of them. "'I ought to be thankful that life is spared to me.' doubtless for some good purpose, and I think I know what that purpose is, though now I am confident of nothing. Neither am I, Russell, neither am I, said the old man, observing how low his voice was, and speaking in a low, sad voice himself. I used to have confidence in the good and the watchful care of the Almighty over all who trust in Him. But now there is something over there, he pointed towards the churchyard, which shows that we may carry such ideas to a foolish point, but I cannot speak of it. Say no more. I will own, replied Overshoot, studying the squire's downcast face, to see how far he might venture. At one time I thought that you yourself carried such notions to a foolish length. That was before my illness. Now I must fully believe that you were quite right. Yes, I suppose that I was, so far as duty goes and the parson's advice. But as for the result, where is it? As yet we see none, but we very soon shall. Can you bear to hear something I want to say, and to listen to it attentively? I believe that I can, Russell. There is nothing now that can disturb me very much. This will disturb you, my dear sir, but in a very pleasant way, I hope. As sure as I stand and look at you here, and as sure as the Almighty looks down at us both, that grave in Beckley churchyard holds a gypsy woman and no child of yours. I put it too abruptly, as I always do, but give me your arm, sir, and walk a few steps. I am not very strong, any more than you are, but— Please, God, we will both get stronger as soon as our troubles begin to lift. Each of them took the right course to get stronger, by putting forth his little strength to help and guide the other steps. Russell, what did you say just now? 
Mr. Oglander asked when the bear had managed to get as far as another little bower. Grace's zone, and there sat down. I must have taken your meaning wrong. I am not so clear as I was, and often there is a noise inside my head. I told you, sir, that I had proved for certain that your dear daughter has not been buried here or anywhere else to my firm belief. Also I have found out and established, to my own most bitter cost, who it was that lies buried here, and of what terrible disease she died. As regards my own illness, I would go through it again, come what might come of it, for the sake of your darling Grace. But, alas, I have lost my own dear mother through this utterly fiendish plot, for such it is, I do believe, this poor girl buried here was the younger sister of Cinnaminta. Cinnaminta, said the squire, trying to arouse old memory. Surely I have heard that name, but tell me all, Russell, for God's sake, tell me all, and how you came to find it out, and what it has to do with my lost pet. My dear sir, if you tremble so, I shall fear to tell you another word. Remember, it is all good as far as it goes. Instead of trembling, you should smile and rejoice. So I will, so I will, or at least I will try. There, now look, I have taken a pinch of snuff. You need have no fear of me after that. All I know beyond what I have told you is that your Gracie, and my Grace too, was driven off in a chase and pair through the narrow lanes towards Whateley. I have not been able to follow the track in my present helpless condition, and indeed what I know I only learned this morning, and I thought it my duty to come and tell you at once. I had it from poor Cinnamenta's own lips, who for a week or more had been lurking near the house to see me. This morning I could not resist a little walk lonely and miserable as it was, and the poor thing told me all she knew. She was in the deepest affliction herself at the loss of her only surviving child, and she fancied that I had saved his life before, and she had deep pangs of ingratitude and of nemesis, etc., and hence she was driven to confess all her share, which was but a little one, she was tempted by the chance of getting money enough to place her child in the care of a first-rate doctor. But Grace, my poor Grace, how was she tempted, or was she forced away from me? That I cannot say as yet. Cinnaminta had no idea. She did not even see the carriage, for she herself was borne off by her tribe, who were quite in a panic at the fever. But she heard that no violence was used, and there was a lady in the chase, and poor Grace went quite readily, though she certainly did seem to sob a little. It was no elopement, Mr. Oglander, or anything at all of that kind. The poor girl believed that she was acting under your orders in all that she did, just as she had believed that same when she left her aunt's house to meet you on the homeward road through that forged letter which— most unluckily she put into her pocket. There, I believe I have told you all I can think of for the moment. Of course you will keep the whole to yourself, for we have to deal with subtle brutes. Is there anything you would like to ask? Russell Overshoot, said the squire, 
I am not fit to go into things now. I mean all the little ins and outs. And you look so very ill, my dear fellow. I am quite ashamed of allowing you to talk. Come into the house and have some nourishment. If any man ever wanted it, you do now. How did you come over? Well, I broke a very ancient vow. If there is anything I detest, it is to see a young man sitting alone inside of a closed carriage, but we never know what we may come to. I tried to get upon my horse, but could not. By the by, do you know Harden now? Mm, not much, said the squire. I have seen him once or twice, and I know that he is a great friend of yours. He is one of the new lights, is not he? I'm sure I don't know or care. He is a wonderfully clever fellow, and as true as steel, and a gentleman. He has heard, of course, of your sad trouble, but only the popular account of it. He does not even know of my feelings. But I will not speak now of them. You may, my dear fellow, with all my heart. You have behaved like a true son to me, and if ever gracious providence— Overshoot took Mr. Oglander's hand and held it in silence for a moment. He could not bear the idea of even the faintest appearance of a bargain now. The squire understood and liked him all the better, and waved his left hand towards the dining-room. "'One thing more, while we are alone,' resumed the young man, much as he longed for and absolutely needed good warm victuals. "'Hardnow is a tremendous walker. Six miles an hour are nothing to him.' the flying dutchman he is called although he hasn't got a bit of a calf of course i would not introduce him into this matter without your leave but may i tell him all and send him scouting while you and i are so laid upon the shelf he can go where you and i could not and nobody will suspect him and of course as regards intelligence alone he is worth a dozen of that ass john smith at any rate, he would find no mare's nests. May I try it? If so, I will take on the carriage to Oxford as soon as I have had a bit to eat. With all my heart, cried the squire, whose eyes were full again of life and hope. Hardenow owes a debt to Beckley. It was Cripps who got him his honors and fellowship, or at least the carrier says so, and we all believe our carrier— and after all, whatever there is to do, nobody does it like a gentleman, and especially a good scholar. I remember a striking passage in the syntax of the Eton Latin grammar. I make no pretension to learning when I quote it, for it hath been quoted in the House of Lords. Perhaps you remember it, my dear Russell? My Latin has turned quite rusty, squire, answered Overshoot, knowing as well as Proteus what was coming. The passage is this. Mr. Oglander always smote his frilled shirt in this erudition, and delivered ore rotundo. Silicet ingenius didicice fideliter artes, immolet moris, nict sinit esse ferros. End of chapter 39